This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. This morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. This morning, as we continue our study in the life of Abraham, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. As you're turning there, I wanted to share just a word of praise with you. Uh, This past Friday, uh, we took Emma to the dentist for the first time since before she uh, became ill. The dentist worked with us. We were able to take her in her wheelchair in, and it went went great. Um, We were amazed at the way she followed his commands, keeping her mouth open. They even took x-rays, and if you've been through that, you know, you have to bite down, and she followed those commands to a T. And so we were very thankful. It was a good visit. Uh, we asked her later how she liked being at the dentist. And <laughs> so she's, she's doing all right in that regard. So we just praise the Lord for that. This passage that we're going to be reading this morning, God reiterates his covenant with Abram for the third time. He emphasizes that he's entering into an everlasting covenant with Abraham and that he is going to bless Abraham far beyond what Abraham and Sarah can imagine. But there's something unique that happens in this text that was missing from the previous two. And that it's in this passage, Abram becomes Abraham. God initiates a change of name. And this morning I want us to recognize that with the change of that name, it was signifying something far more important. It was signifying a change in identity for Abraham. So follow with me as I read verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout third generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations. 
whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. In the year 2000, the motion picture Gladiator won Best Picture. While it's graphic in its violence, its story is very poignant. For it tells the story of a general in the Roman army. A general who had gained the confidence of the emperor, Marcus Aurelius. To the point where the emperor decided that the emperor's ship would not be passed to his son Commodus. But would be placed in trust with Maximus, the general, so that he would return it to a true republic. Of course, this decision did not set well with the emperor's son Commodus. And so through a plan deceived or conceived in treachery, he worked to have the general murdered and the general's family killed. While the general's wife and son were tragically and horribly murdered, the general survived. And through a series of circumstances, he became a slave who became a gladiator fighting in the Roman arena. And he was good at it. As he fought, he wore a helmet that covered his face because the emperor, Commodus, the, the, the evil, uh, the, the, the villain in the story would come and watch the games. And the general gained such notoriety that one day after a battle, the emperor came down to the floor of the arena to meet this gladiator who is of such fame. The gladiator is standing in front of him and the emperor doesn't know who he is. And so he looks at him and he says, why doesn't the hero reveal himself? Some say you are Hercules reborn. The general responds, my name is Gladiator. And he turns his back to walk away, which is an insult to the emperor. The emperor commands him to stop and turn around and says, reveal who you are. And in a moment of high drama in the film, the general removes his helmet and he utters this phrase. He says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, and loyal servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered husband, son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance. Ooh. It's a moment of high drama as the identity, the identity is revealed. And in that moment, the fear comes over the emperor's face because he recognizes who this is and the, the meaning of this man standing in front of him. And the revelation of his name means something. Names matter. They matter not for the reasons that we think. Because today, when we think of names, we often select a name based on maybe what sounds good or something that's popular at the time or maybe a family name. But I would remind you in the Bible, names carried with them meanings. For example, in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah has two children, he is told to name the first one, Meher Shalhal Hashbaz. Expectant parents, there you go. 
He's told to name his son Meher Halashabaz, because it means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens, signifying that Israel was going to be defeated by an enemy. Hosea had a daughter, and Hosea was told by God to name her Lo Ruhameh, meaning she has not received mercy, communicating something about the people. In the book of Ruth, Naomi, who is really at the centerpiece of the story, Naomi goes through not one name change, but two. Naomi means pleasant, but as everything is taken from her and her husband dies and her sons die, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because Mara means bitterness. Now, the amazing thing is, toward the end of Ruth, she says, no longer call me Mara. Call me Naomi again because she is holding her grandson who is named Obed, who will father someone named Jesse, who will have a son named David. Mary and Joseph were told clearly, you shall have a son and you shall call him Jesus. Why? Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Now, up to this point, we have been following Abram. Abram simply means exalted father. That's a name you can take pride in, exalted father. But notice in verse 5, God says, No longer will your name be called Abram. From now on, it will be called Abraham, because you will be a father of a multitude. This is a turning point. A name represents an identity. And while we may no longer think in terms of meanings of names, we are still very concerned about identity. Identity matters. Our identity, our concept of who we are, gives us a sense of stability. And intuitively, we want to know who we are. That's one of the tragedies of amnesia. When you read the stories of people because of whatever circumstance, can no longer remember who they are, cannot remember their past, cannot remember those around them. There's a tragedy to that because they are suffering this loss of identity. Our identity becomes an anchor. It's something we can hold on to in crisis. To say that no matter if everything else around me is falling, this is who I am. It also serves as a guide in our action and our ethics. What we do flows out many times out of our concept of who we are, our sense of identity. In fact, our identities can often determine how we do on things. Many times if we see ourselves as an underachiever, lacking intelligence or ability, guess what? We will behave in such a way. If we settle saying, well, that's just who I am. I could never do that. Guess what? We never will. If you were to ask the question, what is identity? Define that. That's a very hard task. It's a very complex answer. It involves our self-understanding, our sense of values, our relationships. In fact, at one time, identity was always determined by relationship. For example, if someone were to ask me, and if I were living in that time where identity was defined by relationship, and they would say, Mark, who, who are you? I would say, I am Mark, the son of Arnold, the son of Lloyd, from the village of Athens. It was all relational. Who you came from, where you from, those relationships define who we are. And then there came a turning point where identity was defined by task. 
In fact, today we are in this transitional time that we'll get to in a moment where even now if you were to ask, you want to get to know somebody, what's one of the first things you ask? What do you do? Because we, uh, we connect identity with what we do. So in this phrase, what would you say? Well, I'm Mark. I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a teacher. That's, that's what I do. And so our task, our work becomes our identity. Now, the problem with that is what happens when you're no longer able to perform that task? If your entire identity, who you are, your sense of self-worth is tied up with what you do, what happens when you're no longer able to do that? That's why many people struggle in retirement. It's not necessarily that there's nothing to do. It's that their whole identity was wrapped up in what they did for 40 or 50 years. So when that's taken away, they're like, I, I, I don't know what anymore. Everything I did was defined by who I was and what I worked. And now I can't work like that anymore. Who am I? And so there is even in the 60s, 70s, this identity crisis that comes about. But today we're experiencing a shift in how identity is defined. It's no longer relational and it's changing from being work or task related. Today identity is determined by two things. Self and sexuality. In other words, we have moved away from letting anything external to ourselves define who we are to saying, I define myself. And because our culture is awash in sexuality, we often let sexuality determine and shape our identity. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at this because the reality is what we worship will always begin to form our identity. We worship that which we esteem highly, which we value, which we believe will bring us the greatest joy and satisfaction. And what we worship will begin to determine who we are. So it should be no surprise that living in a culture that says the greatest thing you can be is to be true to who you are and you define who you are. And in a culture that is enamored with sexuality, that those two things begin to shape identity. We hear this in the language today. I identify as. You can fill in the blank in our culture. It's what I identify. And the problem is that this ignores the doctrine of sin. You see, sin has impacted every aspect of our being. Every aspect. Even our desires. That's why desires are a very poor guide for identity. That's like getting directions from a broken compass. A broken compass will never show you true north. When we recognize that sin has impacted every aspect of our identity, our being, we recognize we are in no position to allow ourselves to determine our identity. So we come back to this fundamental truth. It is God who forms and defines our identity. It is God who shapes who we are. Now, there are two ways that God has done this. One is in creation itself. We, out of all of creation alone, are made in the image of God, the Imagio Dei. We reflect who God is, and because of that, we are unique. So we can go back and say, as human beings, our identity is formed by the fact we were created in God, and that holds for us a sense of worth and value that we are somebody not based on what we produce, not based on necessarily our failures or our successes, but based on the fact we are made in the image of God. But then the Lord goes even beyond that because of the fall. 
our identity is also shaped by covenant. Specifically, our covenant in Christ. So, we start there. Our identity is found in our covenant with God through Jesus Christ. I draw your attention to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 17. There are two great truths that emerge out of these two verses. The first is Lord reveal, the Lord reveals another name. I am God Almighty. You may be familiar with the Hebrew phrase from the song written by Michael Card, sang by Amy Grant, El Shaddai. It's interesting that he uses that phrase. Because look where Abraham is. Verse 1, 99 years old. Now I would remind you at the end of chapter 16, Sarah had devised this scheme by which they would have children through Hagar. And notice at the end of that chapter in verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. So now for 13 years, Sarah is still childless. So it's going to take God Almighty to fulfill his word. So the great truth we come to, it is God Almighty who enables not just for Abraham and Sarah to have children, but notice the command, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. So if the first truth is that it is God Almighty, the second truth is, is that to be in a covenant with God changes the way you live. To walk before me means to live before me. In other words, Abram, don't live your life based on the culture around you. Don't live it based on your desires. Walk before me. That's what's inherent in that phrase. Live your life for me. The decisions you make, make them for me. The choices you make, make them for me. Abram, I'm to be the center of your life. But it's this Frank's phrase, be blameless, that, that just kind of is difficult to read. Because I recognize how in the world can Abram be blameless? How can you and I be blameless? There was a day and age long ago when I could dunk a basketball. The memories of it are still faintly in my mind. Those high-flying days above the rim. Now if you were to tell me to touch the net, I would have to stretch for quite a while and then get a step stool. So if you were to tell me, Mark, if you were to walk before God, dunk a basketball, I'd be in trouble. Be blameless. <laughs> Lord, you might as well have told me to dunk a basketball because I don't know that I can be. That's the good news of the gospel. He has not left us on our own to walk before him or to be blameless. That's why it's so important to connect God Almighty. Because how does he do this? He empowers us to live before him through the power of the Holy Spirit and to be blameless through what Jesus did. That is the security for our identity. This covenant that he enters into. I will make you walk before me. You will be blameless that I may enter into this relationship with you. And you'll notice throughout these 14 verses, Verses, he emphasizes that it is an everlasting covenant. So there's the security for our identity. Isn't it glorious to know that our identity is not based on something that we drum up, something that we envision for ourselves. It is based on who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus and the change that he brings. I love the passage that Michael read earlier so much. It's back on the screen. He says, who are you? 
Church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. That's who we are. And he says, not only is that who you are, but I've given you what you are to do, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, here's the, this is the amazing part of this identity. Instead of basing my identity on my work, which may, come, you know, may one day come to an end, do we ever stop proclaiming the excellencies of God? It doesn't matter if you've retired from your work. You still proclaim the excellencies of God. I've heard stories of saints that in their latter days, even when they were in a, a nursing home, still witnessing to those nurses taking care of them. Why? They're proclaiming the excellencies. Their identity was not based on what they did vocationally here, but based upon God saying, this is my purpose. This is who I am. I'm a people called out by God, a chosen race. In fact, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. So we go back to this truth. Our identities as believers is not based on something that we drum up. It's not based on self or sexuality. It is based on the covenant we have with God through Christ. And because of that, our identity looks to the future. Notice in verses 4 through 7, there's this turn. You shall be a father of a multitude of nations. Now, once again, think how tired Abraham must be of hearing that. Okay, Lord, when? When? So he says, keep looking. I'm going to work through you to the point in verse 6. You're going to be exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations and kings shall come to you. There is a future orientation to our identity. And that's very important for us to remember. Because that means that our identity is not just rooted in the past in what God has done. It's rooted in what he is doing now to move us forward to his plan for the future. Because so many of us have allowed the past to identify who we are. Mistakes from the past. Pain from the past. Problems from the past. And so we never start looking forward, but everything we do is shaped by those things. Rick Warren made this statement once, and I think it's very true. You may be a product of your past, but you don't have to be its prisoner. And I think it is so easy today for us to allow the past to be a jail cell we are kept in, always looking back. That is the gracious good news of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. If we keep looking in the past, We'll never experience the grace God has for us today or in the future. We'll be like a jockey by the name of Willie Carson, who was very famous, especially in England. He was racing one day at Pontefract Racetrack, and he was in the lead. But he kept hearing horse hoofs behind him. So he glanced back, and he noticed the shadow of the horse. And so he started pushing on further and further. He crossed the finish line, and when he looked back, the nearest horse was 15 lengths behind him. And he realized something. He'd been racing his own horse's shadow, trying to get away from it. For many of us, that's where we are today. We're trying to get away from the past. It's like a shadow looking at us. And the good news of the gospel is this. 
God brings healing to those scars. And He can bring about transformation. That's something we must never forget. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as Paul is writing to this church, he says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the next sentence is what grabs my heart and mind. And such were some of you. That's who you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're not defined by those past sins. You're defined now by the Savior. Your past is not meant to be a prison for you. Open those doors and look to what Christ is doing. Your identity looks to the great future that God has. And therein is hope. Hope because of the covenant we have in Christ and hope for what God is doing, that He is faithful to our promises. The third thing I would pass along to you this morning about our identity as believers is that it is remembered by a symbol. Now, verses 10 through 13 gives the symbol of circumcision. Now, it's interesting that the, the Jews or Israel at this point with Abraham, they were not the only group in the ancient Near, Near Eastern culture to practice circumcision. But what was unique is this. Circumcision was then tied to their covenant relationship with God. That's what set it apart. The others it was done for numerous reasons but this was the symbol given to communicate their identification with the covenant and it hit at their very core of their, their identity and recognizing who they are. Symbols are a powerful thing. The catacombs under Rome where Christians would hide during persecution. They found symbols such as the dove Reminding people of the Holy Spirit. The ichthus, the fish symbol, which symbolizes Jesus Christ, God's Son. And interestingly enough, they've also found the anchor. Did you know the anchor was a symbol of early Christianity? Because in the midst of suffering, they remembered that Jesus was the anchor of their souls. Now, circumcision, as described here throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, was simply a symbol of something greater. And what the New Testament teaches us is this. Baptism in many ways symbolizes what circumcision did. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Because part of the debate they had in the early church was, well, should a person that is uncircumcised go through it? And Paul is saying, no. Dealing with the flesh has nothing to do with your walk with God. Jesus works in our soul to make us part of the covenant community. So he says, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, that means the circumcision brought about with Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So you could really draw this, this connection point between saying what circumcision was to the Old Testament saint, baptism is to the New Testament believer. It's not that it saves, but it becomes a symbol to communicate the gospel and to publicly identify with Jesus. 
So when a person is baptized, they are symbolizing the gospel. They are symbolizing the washing away of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. But they are also symbolizing their identification with Jesus. That just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again, I publicly am identifying with Jesus that I have died, that I have been buried, and that I have risen again. That's why Paul could say in Galatians, it is not I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. I've been crucified with Christ. So believer, what that means is those times when we begin to struggle with our identity, to go back to that act of baptism, to remember that, to say I have publicly identified with the symbol of the community of faith, which leads me to the final point of this message on identity. Our identity is secured by covenant with God. Our identity is frees us from the past because Christ frees us from the past. Our identity is symbolized in baptism. And our identity is solidified in community. Notice the warning in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male will be cut off from the people. That means removed from the people. What's being emphasized there is the importance of community and identity. We need each other. That's why baptism takes place within a congregation. You're not just somebody saying, well, hey, let's just go to a pool and be baptized and that's it. You are baptized to be part of a congregation, part of the people of God, to help you to grow in understanding your identity in Christ. Because we have to grow. We are working like like. My, my son was working on refinishing a table. And in refinishing that table, what did he did? He stripped away the old pieces of varnish before he could apply the new. That's discipleship. That's sanctification. Stripping away the false patterns of thinking, the false identities, and coming back and coming back to this communal memory. Saying, this is who I am. See, we are part of a community one of the movies that I've grown to appreciate is a movie called Jojo Rabbit. It tells the story of a, I think he's around nine or ten year old little boy growing up in Germany in World War II. And he has been indoctrinated into Nazism. He's part of the Hitler Youth. So he is very shocked to find out that his mother is a part of the resistance and has been hiding a Jewish girl in their house. After he discovers her, they start having, he and Elsa, the hidden Jew, start having conversations. And Jojo's bragging about being a, an Aryan. And he says, I am, he looks at the Jew, I'm sorry, he looks at her and he says, you are weak. I am born of Aryan ancestry. My blood is pure and my eyes are blue. And Elsa looks at him and she says, I am descended from those who wrestle angels and fight giants. I love that line. Church, you know who we are? We are a part of the community of faith that has persevered when tried. We are part of the community of faith that has stood firm when tested. We are part of the kingdom of God that has seen empires rise and fall. We are part of the community who has seen healing happen and seen the Savior calm the storm. We are part of the community that has conquered death itself. We are part of the community that belongs to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
That's our identity. There are times we will struggle with identity, who we are. We all do at times. I've shared with you before that one of the theologians that I love reading is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was arrested as part of being a member of the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Before he, before Bonhoeffer was executed, he spent time in prison. And in prison, he wrote letters back and forth to his sister and to others, to his fiancée. One of those letters, he shared a poem that he wrote. Because Bonhoeffer, he began to minister to the fellow prisoners as well as to the guards. I won't read the entire thing, but in many ways, this reflects some of the struggle we have and where I hope that we will end up. Bonhoeffer wrote, Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed, accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know to be? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, yearning for colors, for flowers, thirsting for words, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance. So you see, Bonhoeffer's feeling this tear. He says, they tell me I step out and I, I interact with others like I am brave and bold, but inside, he says, I'm hurting. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and a tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. And this is where I pray we will end up. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Lord, I may struggle, but I know I am yours. That's our identity, church. I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer right now. There are times we need to be reminded of this. To be reminded of who we are. To remember our baptism. To remember that God has redeemed us. Not, not because we deserved it, but because He is gracious. So this morning, I want to ask you to take a moment to remember Believe or remember who you are. The first thing that may come up is the evil one telling you, well, if you are really a child of God, then why are you struggling with this? Claim the grace of God. Just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to say, you know what, I may struggle and I may have ups and downs, but I know ultimately I belong to Jesus. Some may be hearing my voice this morning and recognize that you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are wrestling with these questions of who I am, what is my purpose. And I would invite you to explore Christianity, to explore the teachings of Jesus, to explore who He is, because that's what it comes down to. 
that Jesus Christ is the Messiah promised by God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And by faith in him, we are forgiven, we are made new, and we are adopted into the family of God. If you need to do that this morning, I'll be glad to talk with you either during this invitation or even following. Father, you know our hearts this morning, the struggles that we have, how, Father, we go up and down at times, being confident in you and then, Lord, doubting who we are and what we're supposed to do. And, Lord, I thank you that in the midst of all this, you are faithful and true. Help us to be rooted in who you are. In Jesus' name.